0: 1 Corinthians 9, page 1,151. It's great to see you. My name's Phil. I'm one of the leaders of the Globe Church. And we love, on a Sunday, to open up our Bibles because this is God's word to us. He speaks to us. And we're going to think hard about what he says. We're working our way through this book of 1 Corinthians um, with, with our title for this part of Please Don't Feed the Egos. So Paul is speaking to the Corinthians who... Uh, are very self-obsessed, they're just feeding their egos, and he's trying to speak truth into that, challenge them, and help them to think about really what it is to live the Christian life, to live for Christ rather than living for self. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 19. Paul says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. I heard an interview the other day on the radio with um, the, the heavyweight champion, Anthony Joshua. He, he's, he's got a few heavyweight fights coming up and they're arranging them. And the, the interviewer is saying that you've got, you've got so much coming on, uh, so many people like me wanting to interview you. How do you? Use your time. How how do you know what to do? You must be so busy. And he was so clear in his vision about what he was going to do over the next few months. His his goal was so clear. He said everything he does from the time he wakes up to the time he goes to sleep is driven by this one big thing of winning that fight, of winning that fight. His, his, he talks about his diet, his exercise, his relaxation, what he does, who he sees, is all behind this one big goal of winning that heavyweight fight. I kind of envied his clarity for his life and his lifestyle. The different parts of our lifestyles, I think, can feel so um, disjointed. But for him, everything lines up behind that one big fight and that, that day coming. I in a strange way, made me think about a physics experiment that we all probably did at secondary school, OK? This is one of my favorites, because you've got a bucket of little iron filings, and you kind of spread them across the, the, the table, and then you get a magnet. And so they're all kind of all over the place, and then you kind of go under the table with the magnet, and they all go and line up to the magnet. It's cool, isn't it? And then you, you kind of pull the magnet under the table, and they're like, oh. and they all follow they around the little iron filings. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> physics was fun. But it it kind of reminds me of, again, like I was saying, the different parts of our lives which are almost like just just chaotic, spread spread across the table, all facing in all sorts of different directions, with no kind of direction. I wish my life had this kind of organized drive that this um, Anthony Joshua kind of have, this one big thing that my life could be about where all the other parts of my lifestyle kind of fit around it. And that's what we're going to be thinking about. This one big thing for our lives. See, as Christians, we feel like maybe we have some very clear direction for some of the big areas of life, some of the big things. The Bible's very clear on a lot of things that are right and wrong. And so those kind of big moral questions, we feel like we've got a bit of a handle on those things. But our lives consist of so many little bits, lifestyle stuff that the Bible doesn't prescribe explicitly about. So what we eat, what we wear, what we spend our time doing, how we relax, who do you hang out with, how do you talk, how do you spend your money, where do you live? those kinds of things it doesn 't prescribe exactly what it happens. see when you become a christian it 's not like you get this little book, the little handbook of being a Christian, and this is every single thing you have to do: how do you spend your time, what job to get, which part of the country to live in, whatever. There are things that are really clear in the Bible about those things, so thinking about what we eat, the Bible is clear that we're not to be greedy, but it doesn't say, well, these are the foods that you eat. Is Marmite sinful? Yes. No, the Bible doesn't say that. So what gives us direction in all those parts of life? I think most of us, when we think about our lives, probably go, don't actually think about it very much. We think about the big things, the big rights and wrongs, but the rest we just kind of do. Except, Underneath it all, we probably don't just do. What we're going to see this afternoon is that none of us actually make lifestyle choices just because. Here's what Paul says is going on behind it all. We're going to see this. He says, like the one big magnet under the table that pulls all the tiny little pieces in one direction, we all live with one big thing pulling all our lifestyle choices in a particular direction, even if we don't actually think about it very much. And this afternoon for us then is an opportunity to step back and take a look at our lives and our lifestyles and ask, what is the one big thing that gives direction to how I live my life? What does God have in store for my life and how I'm supposed to live it? So let's start by thinking about the Corinthian church and we're going to have to go to a little bit um, in chapter 10 to see what the one big thing is for them and it's pretty easy to spot, it's me. Me. Turn over to chapter 10, verse 23, just over the page. The one big thing for them is me. Chapter 10, verse 23. I'm not going to steal all the thunder from when the sermon comes for this, but it's helpful to see. Verse 23, this is what they, they say. This is like their motto. I have the right to do anything, you say but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. There it is again, but not everything is constructive. And Paul says, no one should seek after their own good, but the good of others. So the question that drove them in their lifestyles was, what will maximize my happiness? That, their motto, their mantra, I have the right to do anything. I, whatever I want, I will do. And then Paul pokes beneath his skin talking about no one should seek their own good but the good of others. He's saying you're seeking your own good and not the good of others. You're just thinking about yourselves. Now I think if you sat a Corinthian down and you said, do you care only about yourself? They probably would say, no, of course not. You know, they, they wouldn't put it that bluntly maybe. But by their lifestyle, by the way all the, the little things line up, Paul says, look, it's pretty clear to me What's the one big thing driving your lifestyle? Ego. Me. For the me question to be in the driving seat of your life is um, it's our human default. And it feels great because we're feeding our egos. We, we, we want to do what we want. But let's have a quick think about how living with me in the driving seat has gone for us as humans. I mean, think about it. What do you think is the one big thing driving the lifestyles in a city with such inequality? Is it not me? What do you think is the one big thing that means we can buy super cheap clothes at the expense of other people on the other side of the world? It's me. It's what works for me. And and what do you think is the one big thing that causes arguments around the dinner table? Or backstabbing in the office or family tensions, even breakups? It's what happens when seven billion people all have, as the one big thing in their lives, the question of me. Now, it can be easy as Christians to think that, well, look, all God's concerned with is some of the big things, look, don't sleep around, try not to murder anyone, you know, kind of, you know big stuff, and if, if I get these kind of big things in line, then he's not very interested in the, everything else I do or why I do it. And I to say that's actually a very dangerous way of thinking about our lifestyles because there will be something in the driving seat of your everyday life choices. And if your heart is anything like mine, the thing will be me. Now, I want to think about when we come to make those big decisions in life. Um, I'm a fan of the Gilmore Girls, uh, which is a TV series, which is for men. <laughs> um, anyway... Uh, in the in the niche little world of the Gilmore Girls, um, you, those of you who watch it will know that a big thing for them is when it comes to make a big decision, you have a pros and cons list. Okay, Harvard or Yale—that's right. And and they and they sit down together, the Gilmore Girls, and they 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 make this pros and cons list and trying to make out their their life decisions. I want you to think back to some of your recent life decisions, things like choosing a job or where to live. In your pros and cons list, as it were, what would have been the number one factor for you. There are loads of factors that go into the mix for questions like where you live, jobs, that kind of thing. And they're all important. I'm not. But what was in the driving seat? Was it was it ultimately your desires? Ambitions, ease, happiness? Was that in the driving seat? Phil, are you saying you should never be concerned with yourself? Is it wrong to think about your needs? It's not what I'm saying. But I'm asking about the number one thing and self shouldn't be the one big thing that drives your life think about it like this one day each one of us will meet God face to face and we know that this is the good news that by trusting in Jesus we will be accepted by God no matter how our life has gone But at the same time, the Bible does talk about us giving an account to God as his children for how we've lived. I want you to imagine that conversation with God that you might have, that you will have. If God asks, so how did you decide to spend your time? You could say, well, I had the right to do anything, God. And if he asks, well, how did you choose to spend your money? You could say, well, most of all, I made sure things were secure and safe and easy. Why did you choose that job or that church or to live in that neighborhood? You could say, well, honestly, I just did what was most straightforward at the time. Do you think that God might have rescued us for something better than that? A better one big thing to shape our lives around? He has. Let's have a think about it. Let's look at what Paul says should be the one big thing. Turn back over the page to chapter 9, verse 19. He starts by saying this, though I am free and belong to no one. Let's just stop there. Paul starts by making something really clear. He says, I am free, I belong to no, no one. What does he mean by that? He means that when you're a Christian, all these different parts of your lifestyle, they are free from any human rules about how to live them. It's like we go, it's like we go through life with kind of lifestyle handcuffs. It's always dangerous because I don't want to tie myself to a lectern at this point. Okay. But it's like we go through life with these lifestyle handcuffs. We're slaves to the expectations and rules of others around us. For some, it's a particular religion. So if you think about Paul as a Jew, he was kind of cuffed in his lifestyle to the Jewish law, which prescribed a certain way of living. So food, you, you can't eat pork, you've got to eat this kind of food. Social life, you don't mix with the non-Jews, the Gentiles. There are even laws about what kind of clothes you could wear and what kind of fabrics, things like that. So all those little bits of life were kind of lined up by Judaism. And he was like handcuffed to those. And all of, the, um, and all of us have these different things that are just the way you do them, our kind of cultural rules and expectations that we live handcuffed to think about it, they're there kind of big rules we have. In Western culture, the importance of personal privacy, that's just a thing for us. Our home being our retreat it's kind of like our castle. In Britain, it's a rule that you cue well, right? It's important, we cue well. You say sorry when someone else does something wrong to you, when it's their fault. You don't talk politics or, or religion at dinner, those kind of things. But you know, when you become a Christian, the cuffs come off. There's no such thing as a Christian lifestyle. There is such a thing as Christian morality, don't, don't hear me wrong, but not rules on external lifestyle stuff. In your fundamental identity, you don't belong to any one culture or family traditions or ethnic expectations or religious rules or class identity. We are, Paul says, free. Free. Okay, Paul. So, if there are no external rules about um, how to live all these different parts of our lives, and if we don't want to be driven by the question of me, then what is the one big thing that everything in our lives should be shaped by? Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. So Paul, he takes those lifestyle cuffs that the gospel has taken off and he puts them back on again. Do you see that? He says, I make myself a slave. And then he goes and he finds people who need to hear about Jesus. And he says, I'm going to cuff my lifestyle to your lifestyle. I'm going to make myself a slave to you. He makes his lifestyle a slave to everyone. He says, your cultural expectations will be mine. Your way of spending time will be mine. Your way of eating or dressing is going to be mine. He says, you, you who need to hear about Jesus, you determine my lifestyle. Why? Well, the one big thing that shapes all the little bits of his life It is this. It is saving as many people as possible. That's his big thing. Saving as many people as possible. And he says it over and over again in these verses. So it's pretty obvious this is one big thing. Verse 19. uh, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. That is one big thing. So the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one um, under the law. So as to win those under the law to those not having the law, so as to win those not having the law, to the weaker became weak, to win the weak. And here's his little summary, verse 22. I have become all things to all people so that one big thing, by all possible means I might save some. It's hard to miss, isn't it? Paul has one big question he asks of his lifestyle. This is the one passion that he gives every part of his life to. How can my life help as many people as possible be saved? Are there choices I can make which will maximize the possibility that others will receive the incredible relationship with God that I've received in Jesus? That's the one big thing it's worth giving every part of your life to. But why does thinking about lifestyle have anything to do with people getting saved? How how do those two things connect? Let's have a look. Because there are lifestyle differences between people that can make it um, easier or harder for them to become Christians and hear the gospel. Before we get to what Paul does, let me give you a really obvious example. If you're a woman and you want to go to somewhere like Saudi Arabia to tell Muslims about Jesus... You can't go in waving your Christian freedom flag and expect to get anywhere. If you go with your hair uncovered and your shoulders showing and insist on eating bacon sandwiches for lunch, no one's going to listen to you. Why? Not because they're rejecting the gospel, but because in Saudi Arabia they have lifestyle rules, which if you go with, you're much more likely to be able to talk about Jesus, right? That's a kind of really clear one. Well, let's have a look at Paul's examples of what, what he does. Have a look at verse twenty. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. So when Paul went to tell Jews about Jesus, he handcuffed his lifestyle to theirs. He said, for example, you know, I could eat pork now as a Christian, but I won't. Because that would just it would just bring down the shutters for Jews. They, they wouldn't hear me. There are all sorts of other things, and this could get very costly. There was a time when Paul wanted to go to a Jewish city to share about Christ, and he wanted to take a young guy called Timothy along with him. Timothy, Greek fella. And Paul knew a Greek young man coming up to Jews trying to teach them about the Bible just wasn't going to work. And one of the Jews' biggest lifestyle rules was that all men must be circumcised. So Timothy got circumcised. Did he have to? No, he was free not to. Is it required of Christians to be circumcised? No. Did it hurt? Probably a lot. But Timothy asked Paul's big question. How can my lifestyle help these people hear about Jesus? Next one, verse 20. Uh, sorry, verse twenty. I know, in verse 20, sorry, yeah. In the little brackets, he says, though I myself am not under the law. So he, he wants to be clear and make sure they don't misunderstand him. He, he isn't actually under the law. There is no cultural law for Christians. But where he can, in good conscience, go along with their Jewish lifestyle, he will. Okay, next one we get in verse 21. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. So Paul takes the lifestyle cuffs and says, if I'm going to help non-Jews hear about Jesus, those not under the law, I'm going to have to enslave myself now to their lifestyle. He switches. He says, I'm going to eat what they're going to eat. It might be that the meat that they're eating was once sacrificed in an idol temple, then later taken to a market and sold, And in chapter 10, he's going to tell us, I'm not going to ask questions about that meat. It's all right. I'm just going to eat it. Why? Because here's his mindset. If I can sit around the dinner table with them and eat what they eat, then maybe, just maybe, I'll get to win them for Christ. And food is not going to be an issue between us. Do you see? Again, he has these little brackets. uh, "Don't, Don't mishear him. Morality still matters to him. Though I'm not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, He's saying there's, there's, um, there's freedom to do these things. And in the Corinthians, they're, they're instantly going, oh, freedom, we can do whatever we want. He says, no, I'm under Christ's law. I, I still obey Christ. But where there's freedom, where I can eat what they eat, I'm going to eat what they eat. Verse 22, last one. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. So Paul got in trouble with the Corinthians because he didn't just talk to the intellectual elite with lofty arguments. We saw that back at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. He would go to the weak in the eyes of the world and he would speak with them their way. He didn't wow them with complicated arguments like the other public speakers in Corinth, with big words that would just have, again, brought down the shutters for people. No, Paul has one big thing that he asks of his lifestyle. How can I help everyone, high, low, strong, weak, hear about Jesus and I will talk with them their way? Verse 22 sums it up. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, you can't say all any more times, could you? By all possible means, I might save some. That's how he decided his lifestyle. So when Paul faces God, and God says, Paul, why did you live in that place? Or eat that food? Or spend time with those people? Paul would say each time, Well, I lived that way so that they could hear about Jesus and be saved. What about us? We're going to think through a a smattering of implications, okay? Because we're talking about lifestyle, right? So there's so many different ways this could apply to us. So we're just going to go through a few different things. First of all, let's think about how we spend our spare time. My natural big question for that part of my lifestyle is, how can I maximize my comfort in my spare time? Now, how many Netflix episodes can I squeeze in before bed? But that's asking the me question. Instead, ask of your time, how can I maximize people hearing about Jesus? Yes, we need to rest. Yes, there are lots of important things to do with our spare time. But don't let the, yeah, what abouts, detract from the challenge of what about this? Are you maximizing the chance of people getting saved with how you spend your spare time. Can I be honest with you about a wrestle I have every week with myself? I I have a wrestle with myself over this, okay? I go to a running club on a Thursday evening, and for me, this is a lifestyle choice to go and make sure that I'm building friendships with people who aren't Christians. I work for a church. I spend a lot of my time with Christians, so I've got to be pretty proactive about this. So, This is me trying to do this and handcuff my Thursday evening to the running club. But every Thursday evening, I do not want to go. I don't want to go. And it's not because I don't like running, because I do. But it's cold, and I'm tired, and the thought of all all the, the chat and the effort, when I'm free to stay home and enjoy an episode with my wife, makes it hard for me to get my backside out the door. So there's this wrestle between me as the one thing and their eternal joy in Jesus as the one thing. And they fight it out. And I I have this conversation with myself. Phil, do your friends at the club need to hear about Jesus? Yes. Do you believe in heaven? Yes. Do you believe in hell? Yes. Do you believe that knowing Jesus is the most important thing in life? Yes. Therefore, is watching an episode more important than you telling these guys about Jesus? No, it's not. Then get out the door. That's how it goes for me. I'm free to stay at home. And on other nights, I do. But I've cuffed my Thursday evening to these friends because they need Jesus. And that gets me out the door. You can pray for me on Thursday evenings. I'm serious. What about your spare time? Okay, let's think about our relationships. You might feel quite culturally different to people at work, maybe, or at school. What do they like to do? Are they the kind of people who, uh, this is work rather than school, go for after work drinks? Um, But maybe the after work drinks thing is just kind of not your scene, it's not what you do. You're free not to go. But what would it look like for you to handcuff yourself to them and say, I'm going to become an after work drinks person to after work drinks kind of people so that by all possible means I might save you by talking to you and living life with you? Perhaps there are people you, you live with or work with who are just they're just unlike they're just so unlike you. You just have nothing in common with them. But you know that you're the only Christian they know. Well, you've got a choice. You can exercise your freedom, keep your distance, and keep things socially kind of neat. But you could say something. You could do something. Get interested in what they're interested in. Talk with them, even if you don't naturally get on with them. Why? Why would you do that? You might save them. Okay, here's one for the Globe Church, maybe in particular in our situation. I want to think about our futures. Many of us here, not all of us, but many of us are at a very transient stage in our lives. We're not going to be in our current job um, or role forever or even in this city for maybe more than a few years. So as you begin to plan your life, ask questions of where do I live, where do I work, what church am I going to go to? Instead of letting me questions drive you, ask this one big question how can my future maximise as many people as possible hearing about Jesus? So if you come to leave London, you could try and find a job near a church, a big church filled with lots of young people, a lot like ours, and that might be the most fruitful thing for you. Or it could be that for some of you, that you find out there's a church with fewer young people perhaps, or maybe it's in a particularly poor neighbourhood, with a ministry that could really value your help but I won't have lots of friends my age, maybe. But it's hard to live in a socially deprived area. True. What would Paul do, do you think? He would go to the place where he can do most good to spread the gospel. If that meant being with a bunch of people he just didn't fit in with culturally, then that's what it'd take. Let me tell you about a friend of mine called Ailsa. Um, she's, she's not particularly outgoing kind of person. She's not a big personality. She's, she's quite an ordinary Christian in many ways. But she's always had a heart for people in the north of England. Here uh, in the gospel, she's from Manchester. and It's just been something on her heart for a long time. And she was in a great church um, with, with me in Nottingham, a lot like Globe. She'd been there for years, came as a student. She was sharing a house with a best friend. And she was free to stay in that good and fruitful situation but she asked Paul's big question. So she picked up and moved to Scarborough, where she knew that a new church plant was started. She's a Lancastrian, so she was becoming Yorkshire to Yorkshireman, and that's a big deal. But she left a job, her thriving and healthy church, and all her friends to join a church full of people she doesn't know. She didn't know anybody at the church. A few, a few kind of contacts. But Ailsa knows that she's got one shot at this life and people in scarborough need to hear about jesus so in a very ordinary but for her costly way she made herself a slave to the people of scarborough and for some of us in this room actually this call to cuff yourself to people who need to hear about jesus is the call to tie yourself to another nation people living around the world who humanly speaking, have a very, very slim chance of ever hearing about Jesus. We saw the video of Sarah earlier. For her, she's become Vietnamese to the Vietnamese. She says, I'm going to move to your country. She le- leaving her, her GP career here. I'm going to learn your language. I'm going to eat your food. I'm going to live your way so that by all possible means, I might save some Vietnamese. Could you cuff your life to those around the world who will probably live and die without ever meeting a Christian and hearing about Jesus? Could that be you? Brothers and sisters, I see it like this. If the Son of God can so passionately love us that he would cuff his life to ours, leave heaven to make himself a human, a human to win humans, to die my death for me, to give me eternal joy in the presence of God forever, then any call he makes on my life, any lifestyle change he asks me to make so that I might save some, that cannot be too great a call or too high a cost. A life lived for the salvation of others is a life lived in the footsteps of Jesus. And that's, That's a life well spent. And the bottom line is that all of this is for him, for Christ. That who Christ is and what Christ has done for us is so precious that in giving our lives for the sake of others, we are giving our lives for him. To him be the glory for all he has done. That is a practical line to see. And if we let our lives be shaped by this one big thing, this mighty calling, we will share in the blessings of the gospel. I think that's what Paul means in verse 23, that I might share in its blessings. That is, he would experience the unique joy, thrill of seeing people saved from hell for eternity with God forever. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China in the um, 19th, 20th century, And, and he lived his life, and this was his handcuffed to the Chinese that's who he gave his life to but most of all his heart was tied to his saviour let's finish with this from Hudson Taylor he said if I had a thousand pounds China should have it if I had a thousand lives China should have them no not China but Christ can we do too much for him Can we do enough for such a precious saviour? Let's pray to him. Oh, Heavenly Father, when we think of what you've done for us in giving us your son to rescue us from these lives lived against you in utter rebellion, your love is so good, it's so passionate, it's so driving that you should give Jesus to die and rise for us. We, we want to thank you. We've sung so many good songs this afternoon, enjoying you, enjoying all that you are for us. Please, Lord, may it not stop there. May the, the sound of singing that Jesus saves, be reconciled to God, not just bounce around these walls, but go out, out of these doors into our everyday, ordinary lives. We ask that there wouldn't be one little patch of our lives that we hold back from you, from me. But everything we would lay at your feet and say, Lord, how would you use this? How do you use my job? How do you use my family life, my friendships, my spare time, my money, everything? Because you're Lord of all. And Lord, we do as a church, we long for people to hear about Jesus and be saved. So please help us to live this out. Help us to help each other live it out. Talk about what this might look like. And by your spirit, please empower us to have the passion of Paul, or even more, the passion of Jesus Christ to give ourselves for the joy of others in God forever. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.